WTF Sharp is functional concurrency. This is Dasha with WTF Sharp, and I'm sitting here today with Ricardo Turrell to answer that exact question, as he recently wrote the book on the subject, Concurrency in .NET, published by Manning. In this episode, we'll cover concurrency-related topics such as asynchronous programming, reactive programming, and agent-based processing, and wrap up by talking about Ricardo's experience in writing this book. If you're interested, a link to his book with a discount code will be in this episode's show notes, and I highly recommend taking advantage of this deal. Beyond writing this book, Ricardo is the host of the DC F-Sharp user group, co-organizer of the Open F-Sharp conference, and gives passionate technical trainings wherever he can. Before we speak directly with Ricardo, I want to take a minute to thank you, the listeners, for your response to the first episode of this show. It takes a lot of effort to plan, record, and edit these episodes, and your tremendous, enthusiastic response definitely makes it worthwhile for me while reinvigorating my love for F-Sharp and the ecosystem around it. I'm very excited for future episodes as well. That all said, Ricardo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure, no problem. So the reason that I am in contact here with Ricardo, who I've known since about early 2015, is he's recently finished a a book on functional concurrency and .NET published by Manning. It should be out very shortly. It's about 500 pages or so, and it goes through a lot of really cool topics in the space of concurrency, asynchronicity, all those kind of things, basically dealing with how do we scale data processing. Can you give a little bit of a background you know, of yourself in F-Sharp, and then what we're going to do after that is we're going to introduce the book and then go over the topics in the book at a high level. So first, could you please introduce you know, yourself and your background? Sure. So, well, um, originally I'm from Italy. That's mm-hmm. where my accent comes from. In Italy, I relocated here 10 years ago. In Italy, my primary business um, was in the healthcare industry. And I develop software for image processing. And uh, at that period of time, the majority of my work was done in uh, Java, C++, and uh, VB. Don't confuse with VB.net. They're probably an older version. You know, like VB6? Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, VB4, <laughs> then uh, yeah, before yeah. VB6. Well, VB6 was basically my first language. I did Quick Basic and then VB6. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. And then... Uh, yeah, so then I relocated here uh, a bit more than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, be around uh, US a little bit, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and uh, the last six years here in the Maryland and DC metro area. Yeah. And I work different kind of uh, company, enterprises such as Microsoft, startups such as StatMuse and so forth. And now I'm back uh, I'm doing some consulting, uh, specifically work with Excella. And um, I use F-Sharp um, I used to have Sharp uh, daily as my primary tool uh, because I like functional programming. I like to think about um, different paradigms coexisting together, such as imperative, object, and uh, function together. Sure. And um, yeah, that's pretty much how I start to be involved in functional programming in school. I have uh, many, many years ago. I graduated, I think, in 95, so I feel pretty old. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that time there was experimental course and I did uh, six months in uh, Haskell or Haskell. Oh, okay. yeah. It was pretty cool, very interesting, very passionate. And then uh, I rejoined the functional paradigm when F-Sharp got reintroduced in the Microsoft ecosystem in 2007, 2008. And uh, yeah, here I am. Cool. So do you mostly work in the .NET space? Do you work with other languages? Like, uh, Can you kind of give me the breakdown of the technologies you work with daily? Yeah, so... Um, since I moved here in the U.S. 10 years in uh, 2004, 2005, I embraced the .NET ecosystem. Okay. Uh, I do like to play with different technologies, but mostly side. I use Scala and uh, lately play with uh, um, you know, Rust and uh, other kind of languages. And uh, it, what really interests me about is how you can see these languages slowly going toward more um, merging all different paradigm like mm. functional paradigm and yeah. so, forth. so I'm interested about learning these languages very cool yeah so how did you get into F-sharp specifically can you tell me a little bit about the on-ramp I'm curious about people's histories and the language itself in the ecosystem yeah so embrace F-sharp you know uh, uh, since it was introduced in in uh, Microsoft uh, ecosystem 2008 but specifically I remember I have an issue to solve um, about um, data mapping okay. okay so at the time was still ADO the, the project was some um, low level data access in ADO and uh, there was a lot of scripting it was like figure out um, a real time 
um, some query so some query was introduced by the user to the website and we had to try to parse this lingo and convert in SQL and there was a lot of boilerplate code in C sharp mm-hmm. that was written from my colleagues and I decided to implement it using F sharp which it did fit quite well with discriminator union and all algebraic data types and the code really was reduced essentially and just worked perfectly so it was a pretty success that makes sense so a lot of that data mapping sense a lot of that data mapping stuff really translates well to the subject of this specific episode in terms of you know when you are dealing with lots of data you need to worry about things like concurrency so is that what kind of got you inspired to write the specific book yeah so i will be involved in um um, concurrency and parallelism, I've been very passionate about, and probably because my background is being involved in uh, data processing okay. for the majority. Um, but yeah, so definitely the inspiration of the book, it, it comes from different kind of thing, um, direction, but uh, definitely uh, I've been involved in you know, data processing, and uh, it seems that, you know, with the um, hardware constraint we have in today, uh, with multiple processes, we should leverage all the resources we have sure. right, to make it fast. But in the beginning, a couple of years ago, you know, I have colleagues that paralyzed the code and it turned out that the code probably was like four times lower. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand why. <laughs> so I started to gain, to gain a little bit more and figure out what could be best practices, best approaches, right, to write a deterministic concurrent code. Very cool. Uh, yep. Cool. So I know I've personally read about the first eight chapters of the book and I've, I've basically skimmed the rest of it, trying to get a feel for what's in those topics. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't had time to finish it, but I'm sure I will once I get the print version soon. So, uh, you know, can you just give a brief overview? What kind of topics do you go over? I know you go over concurrency, but there's a huge umbrella under that space and yeah. there's related topics in there. So the book structure really uh, start with the, the first part that it tried um, determinates like a common lingo. There are still some confusion today about you know concurrent, parallelism, sequential, and hardware constraint versus no hardware constraint, and so forth. Uh, so I tried to create a, a middle ground of the terminology there, mm-hmm. and then uh, some example where concurrency uh, it creates some problem if it's not right, correct. But um, the, really, the big idea about this book is how we leverage. Uh, multi-paradigm in, in, uh, to write the deterministic concurrent code. And when I say deterministic, it when you have a predictable result when you write uh, you know, a piece of code, you always have the same result regardless the execution time of, the, of your code. Because you can think about that concurrency is, is all about breaking apart, breaking apart um, data that can be processed uh, independently and then you glue back together the result. Great. That's a, that's a very good overview of what's in the book. So, you know, when's it coming out? Where can I get it? Those kind of things. So the book is uh, in uh, production uh, currently. Is that The digital version is good to go and can be found in the Manning website and shortly in Amazon when the printed version is available. Mm-hmm. There was unfortunately a delay due to the big fire we had in California and the production was there based in, um, in California Santa Barbara, I think. So there will be a delay from December to February, but they're all in, print, in printing right now. So it'll be ready in the next few weeks. Very cool. And Ricardo mentioned before the show that he can provide a discount code. That will be on the website, wtfsharp.net, in the show notes. So check it out there, and we'll have a link to all the places you can get the book. So, you know, I'm coming in here. I happen to know F Sharp and C Sharp as my daily job. Do people need to know F Sharp? to read this book, they need to know C-sharp, what are the prerequisites for, for coming in here? So there are already prerequisites. So the book uh, have two particular um, big topics. One is uh, the functional paradigm and how it can be applied in combination with the object-oriented programming. And you don't need to know about functional programming to, to, to read this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna go through the process, how the main uh, theory, but really gonna be easy to understand. And also, the, the main um, reason is, to me about this book is also how we can leverage different languages such as C-sharp and F-sharp and, um, and how we can take the best from both languages. The, really how we can interrupt between the two languages. So you can write maybe some modeling in F-sharp and C-sharp can consume the mm-hmm. library and vice versa, right? Sure. So we don't need, and actually have a, 
Uh, I've written a, an appendix, two appendix and the book to get up to speed in both C sharp and functional programming. So that is not really required. You mean F sharp and functional programming? Yeah. Yep. Cool. So very good. So what we're going to do for the rest of this episode is kind of go through the book at a roughly linear pace of what the topics are in the book. So we can get an understanding of, you know, what functional concurrency is versus sequential programming versus all these different topics and tease apart these ideas. We're going to stay at a high level because this is a podcast and certain things do not come across just verbally. So if you do want to get into the nitty gritty details, please check out either his book or any other resources on this. I know Manning and other publishers have a lot of stuff in this space. Before we get into parallel programming and asynchronous programming, what is sequential programming? At the CPU level, you know, what are the constraints that lead us into all these needs? Well, so sequential programming is the way that we used to program, you know, traditionally, lately, is a, a one logic computation at a time. Right? So it really actually how the machine works. You compute something, and then the result is passed to the next computation, and so forth. And um, in a sequential manner, right? But the problem is that that is going to leverage one core uh, only at a time. Right. And in these days, you know, we're a multiple core machine, so most likely we are going to leverage only a smaller portion of the resources available from the machine, right? So yeah. in a four core machine, for instance, we're gonna leverage probably only the 25% of all the resources. Okay, so now we've got an understanding of the limitations at the very low level when you just have one processor and one thread running. So how do we evolve from that to this current place where we have multiple clouds, you know, quote unquote, running and interacting with each other? Yeah, so, well, the next actually um, step is uh, concurrency, when you have uh, multiple unit computation running at once. So multiple things happen at once. Uh, and we can have concurrency uh, um, in a single core machine. However, there are some harder constraints that can act actually add some extra overhead because at that point if you have multiple things run in this not at the same time but concurrently uh, low level the uh, the operation system scheduler is start to switch this computation between these threads mm -hmm. running and uh, this content switch is called um, it just creates some extra overhead because overall only one thing at a time can run in a single core machine fortunately uh, this is can um, overcome this limitation toward uh, these days, modern com computer they have multiple uh, cores. Sure. So concurrency it really becomes um, harder constraint in a single core. But you have parallelism when you move toward a machine with multiple cores. At that at that point, with multiple core, you can run really multiple things at the same time in parallel, right? And the scheduler it doesn't have to count switch between thread because the thread run independently in a different uh, different core. And then higher level, I mean, uh, forward down, uh, we have, uh, beside the CPU, we can also talk about uh, distributed system. Probably later I can uh, talk about the message passing when you uh, distribute the work, different machine. At that point, different kind of architecture can be broken apart in services where each services can have different computation and then also become also automatically Cloud-friendly. Sure, and that's especially relevant in these days where we're dealing with big data and we have not even just multiple machines we're accessing, but we have data that's in multiple places that we need to oh, yeah, kind right. of pull together in a single place. So that's correct. Yes. Th there's definitely a lot of space. There's more and more space as time goes for the for concurrency and all this. So, so thank you for that. Um, so what is functional concurrency specifically? We've kind of gone over, you know, the, the sequential to concurrent bit. You know, what, what's so special about functional concurrency? So functional concurrency, I think it, I coined the term, I have this meeting with <laughs> a publisher that it wasn't sure because there is no such a thing as functional concurrency, but it is concurrency written in a functional way. Sure. Right? But I like the term functional concurrency because it really expresses the idea behind this book. And the idea is leverage the functional paradigm with uh, tenants such as, you know, immutability, uh, stateless, and side effect free function that really make the code written in a concurrent manner correctly. And um, the main idea of the book actually is uh, avoid completely, well, almost completely, uh, the synchronization locking using primitives such as semaphore and mutex, mm -hmm. which uh, overall, as the name you know, imply, um, locking, it prevents actually the code to run in parallel, but actually it protects a memory space to be corrupted. And when I say corrupted, I mean that when a multiple thread acts the same space of memory, maybe one thread changed the state of um, this memory slot and the second thread access and found 
uh, this state in an unwanted. Yeah, so I, I know I've faced so many problems like that in you know, even production systems where you, where you have multiple threads going, either you have deadlocks running and it's kind of painful to deal with that, or you just not perform it because of this context switching when you're manually dealing with these locks and such. It's just very hard to keep difficult. But luckily, you know, through all these different constructs that we're going to talk about the rest of this, we've raised the abstraction level where we, we've been able to kind of solve some of those problems. That's very nice. So, you know, how has functional programming influenced like mainstream languages? I, th I think there's a lot of tie-in between, you know, C++ I've even seen evolve to deal with multi, kind of multi-paradigm systems, which you wouldn't think so quite a while back. Yeah, this is interesting um, because, as you mentioned, we have uh, uh, mainstream languages such as C++, but even Java, C Sharp, mm -hmm. they start to be influenced in a functional paradigm. And I think one aspect is also the concurrency aspect because these languages were designed without multi-core in mind. At that time, you know, uh, Morse law predicted, you know, that uh, the code was just getting uh, faster and faster. So there wasn't another problem for these languages to, to be concurrent or, I should say, parallel friendly. Mm -hmm. But to solve this, uh, this problem, uh, we see how functional features are added to the mainstream languages to overcome the limitation. We have, you know, the, uh, we start with the TPL in the .NET, but now we see... Which is the task parallel library. Task parallel library, or the parallel patterns library in PPL and C++. And um, it's interesting, actually, the evolution. We see that there are immutable collections, for instance. We're going to try to use immutability rather than mutate object to avoid you know, the concurrent hazard uh, due to the mutation. And uh, so more and more, these features are add to the languages. However, to me, it's, some, it's something that you just add like a... a abandoned right mm -hmm. it's saying yes it's working but it wasn't designed from the beginning with this kind of concept in mind and to me uh functional paradigm and functional languages really fit better you know in this context like sure i, I have to agree with that especially when you combine the need for concurrency with the data structures that are in functional languages that really you know adhere well to that so uh you know data flow is just really nice in f sharp for example because you have things like the pipe operator, where even visually, I can see at a high level abstraction what's happening and how the data is flowing. And it's it's kind of easier to reason about having those uh, abstractions under the hood working with different cores and different threads and such. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners here are probably C-sharp developers kind of taking a peek into F-sharp and, and what's going on. And what I want to do is kind of give them a... Some, some kind of hope that they've already done some of this. I know as soon as Link came about, a lot of things started clicking for C-sharp developers in terms of functional programming. And, you know, patterns like MapReduce and ForkJoin might seem advanced at first glance, but realistically, you might have already actually used that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, as I mentioned, really, uh, there are a lot of uh, future, uh, functional feature in languages like C-sharp specifically that... Um, Programmers use without being aware they actually come from the functional paradigm. As you mentioned, MapReduce is one of these patterns that it only comes from the composition of functions such as MapReduce, but not only can be other functions in the middle like group by, filtering, and so forth, but really the composition about all these functions uh, together. Uh, which is a uh, bring also a very good topic about that. To me, uh, the main benefit about functional paradigm, especially actually in the context of concurrency, is about uh, the composition aspect. It really mm -hmm. enrich the idea of breaking apart the problem is more problem until they're easy to solve independently and then glue back together using composition. And also, uh, at that point when the function is so small, you can actually control this function. So in, in a functional world, there's this term about pure function. And can be, you know, frightened or scared in the beginning, but actually what they said is that you can expect deterministically uh, the, the, the result of the function without unwanted behavior. And what functional programming help is actually, it doesn't stop you to have side effect in your function, such as something happened outside the function, like uh, writing a console or even throwing an exception, which is all good. But really functional programming emphasizes the fact that you can control and isolate the side effect. Right. And when actually, when you isolate the control side effect, then the code is easy to understand, mm -hmm. easy to test. And you have less surprises. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
And uh, so all these uh, nice goodies from functional paradigm start to be introduced in, in uh, mainstream languages in a very organic way. And uh, we're just using it today without being aware. One is MapReduce, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and, uh, but there's also fork join, divide or concur, which is a just fancy name for something that just say split the problem in multiple smaller problem and then glue them together. Right, which to me is pretty much functional programming. Uh, you know, realistically, I, I had a blog post a while back on pseudocode-driven development where basically you, you had a task of taking some data and, you know, it was basically CSV in a text file and you want to parse that data and you want to do all these things. And the way I'm speaking right now, the way I'm saying you want to do this and then you want to do this and then you want to do this, that's pretty much how functional programming feels to me. And that's very much also how these different patterns like MapReduce and Fork Join feel. So th these topics really do relate to each other in parallel. Uh, I think a lot because of the low-level mathematical properties. We don't really have to get into you know monads and all that kind of stuff. No. But all the uh, you know commutative and associative properties, and you know all these different uh, data structures having identities and zero elements and those kind of things really do at the higher level influence the ability to do to, to utilize these abstractions. So, so this is all very important. We've kind of got a brief overview of what sequential programming is versus parallel versus concurrent. You know, if you want more detail, of course, check in the book. Uh, what I want to do now is get into big data. You know, what is the brand? How do you describe it in 30 seconds? What is data parallelism? All that kind of stuff. So I guess first things first, can you try to explain big data and the brand behind it in 30 seconds? Yeah, big data is the one of the terms that is um, keep evolving, right? But, yeah. <laughs> uh, different, you know, can you get a different definition from different, um, dif different experts? However, I really think about big data to me is uh, when you have um, a large data that cannot be handled in a traditional way, cannot handle like in your laptop, cannot be handled in a traditional computer, but need to be probably a uh, different kind of tooling, you know. And uh, and also to me, big data is not just about data, but about all the ecosystem around the big data, such as the extraction, the, the transformation and so forth. Sure. And um, I recently uh, was reading something interesting about how big data can be defined uh, with something called the 3V velocity, volume, and variety, which mm -hmm. really define the three properties around how the data has been uh, generated, like real time or very uh, fast, like think about all the data can be generated from a bunch of IoT devices around. Sure. Uh, the volume, of course, and the variety, because uh, and the variety is actually, it's not just about the data can have um, a variety, of course, but also about the variety of frequencies, how this data is generated back to the velocity property. I see, that makes sense. So. My 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 explanation of big data, and I've I've thought about it a little bit, is you know we've we've had sequential programming, and then on top of that we have multi-threading. On top of that we have multi-core, and on top of that we have to have what multi-machine, right? So big data to me is when you need that that next level of abstraction. I think you know I don't know what the next point is. I think we've pretty much hit the limit of branding in terms of abstractions. I'm not sure what bigger data is, but yeah, that that's pretty much how I see that. So how does data parallelism parallelism uh, fall into that, you know, what is that? Yeah, so the main difference between like data parallelism or task parallelism is when you have a single instruction that is run against a, um, a set of data or multiple instruction. Mm -hmm. So data parallelism is about single instruction, really you, again, you partition the data in chunks, which is easier to run in parallel and then um, aggregate the result uh, uh, when the computation is completed. And uh, I like to think about even MapReduce these days is not just MapReduce in our local machine that can be distributed work among the cores on your machine, right. but Parallelismo can be also distributed, you know, of course, in, in a, in a multi-machine environment. Sure. Can you pause just a second to explain MapReduce in very simple terms? I know we probably yeah. take it for granted. So it's literally map and reduce, but to someone that's new to functional programming, they don't well, really know what that is. Yeah, so really, uh, it's not really literally MapReduce because MapReduce is the name, but you can have like intermediate other step, like you have like filtering, you have a group by, you have reduce, and also you can have back forward mapping reduce, really an aggregate of different function that aim to uh, manipulate your data to ultimately get the result that you, you're looking for. Sure. So it's really, but uh, MapReduce is about um, breaking apart the problem in different function so they can run independently and then compose the function back together. Right. So at the very high level, you have map, which is you know taking data from each individual 
node, however you want to say it. Right. And then the reduce is, you know, basically some some guy at the top is looking at all the individual worker bees right. and then taking data in from them and then working with it. And then uh, aggregate it or, or put it together back. And uh, one of the parts actually that in the book explain is that uh, there are some properties that your data should have that you mentioned earlier, associativity and commutative. But uh, sometimes we're facing the problem that we deal with objects that are not uh, they don't have this property. For instance, uh, list have this property because list can be appended and uh, they're also like some sort of this identity list, which is pretty much an empty list. Or an integer also um, is a satisfied property because integer can be you know add with a, either you know with a commutative or associative properties sure. and they have the zero integer. But sometimes we deal with the data structure that don't have this property built you know intrinsic in in mm-hmm. in, in, in a type. So how we can leverage it is uh, this uh, property or build a MapReduce algorithm around this property. Well, uh, this property actually you can create and apply this property and it just is a, it's just very simple math. So in the book I shall explain quite well how you can get the structure and uh, make sure that they satisfy this property so actually you can run in a MapReduce algorithm without, sure. you know. So you have, you have to satisfy certain criteria to, right. to actually utilize MapReduce, but you, you go into how you can take something that doesn't naturally satisfy the criteria right? and, and do that. That, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for example, the classic example, if you extract from the database an employee object, but you have MapReduce running a collection of uh, employee. Mm-hmm. Well, the employee, probably a collection satisfies this, this property, but the employee per se is not built with, you know, associativity, commutative, or, yeah. you know, that. So how are you <laughs> going to do that? So in the book, I shall explain how you can leverage this property. Okay, very cool. So MapReduce is one, you know, high-level pattern of, of distributed computing. What's the difference between that, divide and conquer, fork join, and those kind of other things? What's fork join, I guess, first of all? Well, so... It's all narrowed down to actually um, divide concur is really the broad broader term. Okay. And the main difference, well, divide concur really, really breaking apart the, the problem. What I like about divide concur is that the idea to breaking apart the problem in a, really in a cursive manner, which is uh, in, from the functional perspective, really make uh, a lot of sense to break the problem in this way. And then there are other patterns you know, that came along, such as fork join and map reduce. The main difference is that fork join actually uh, think about you have you breaking the problem and you run in parallel uh, some computation, but before to move forward to the next step, they all wait they wait that all these computation complete to join together and then continue the, the process. Instead, MapReduce is more like an organic fluid processing hmm. where each step can go forward without waiting for the previous one to complete. Yeah, right? I, I like that. That's good. So really, divide and conquer is, is the top-level abstraction, and we have these other things under that. Okay, I was getting right. backwards a little bit. That makes sense. Uh, so how, you know, when we're doing this and we have so much data, or when we even have lower data and we're dealing with, you know, just multi-threading or multi-processing, or sorry, multi-core, how do we actually measure performance? You know, where's the point at which we know that we need to raise the abstraction level or or raise the the abilities that we're using here measuring performance benchmark is something um, very tricky but super important like as i mentioned earlier i have cases in the beginning uh, many years ago that colleagues were paralyzed the work and actually were running slower than a sequential one mm-hmm. and the problem is that is said in the introduction of extra overhead in, in the computation um, so measuring is about measuring how the work is done but also be sure that you satisfy the hardware constraint of the machine that is running the computation. For instance, ideally we want to have this algorithm that auto-adapt and uh, maximize the resource consumption mm. based upon the local uh, hardware that is running, right? Sure. So if you're a four machine, if a core machine, four core machine, it'll probably run almost four times faster. But if it's running a six core machine, sixteen core machine, it also leverage all the sixteen cores. The problem is that Sometimes you run this algorithm on your local machine that is super beefy. You know, we have developed machine with a lot of RAM and a lot of cores, but then this is now replicated in a client machine, right? So benchmarking is important in um, trying to figure out different kinds of cases, different kinds of environment. But one thing that is um, a cover in the book that is interesting to 
understand is that it's not about just speed, it's not about a multiple core avoidable, but how you structure your data also to optimize the memory consumption. Like for instance, we have reference type, you know, structure type, and uh, this is the direction lately that like Microsoft later introduced uh, better support for struct because there is less, you know, pressure to the garbage collector. Sure. And I'm going to tell a second what uh, that's implied, but there actually is you to be careful because you are still using structure, but you have like reference type in a structure per se, you end up probably with the opposite behavior you were expecting and you create more garbage collection pressure. So, and that garbage collection is pretty tricky because <laughs> if it's not set correctly and you have too, mem too much memory pressure, the GC also stop the computation to clean up and free up some memory and then continue the work, which, you know, downgrade the performance overall. So really, uh, the takeaway is that it's not just about parallelism and multi-core, but also memory consumption. Be sure you leverage and maximize the, the, yeah. the performance. Sure, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, it's funny, I actually kind of came up with an alternative title for your book as I was reading through it. It's basically resource management with, with F-sharp or, you know, basically the optimization of all these different variables, right? You have time in terms of processor time, you have uh, individual RAM, you have human time trying to develop this, you have, you know, multiple machines and the fact that SSDs are faster than HDDs and all those kind of things. You you have these different levels of problems and it's, it's really neat that through the book you kind of go through, okay, at this level you want to focus on these things, you might not want to focus on these other things. Uh, so... Uh, there's my little bit about the alternative title, just resource management in general. I mean, the whole point of concurrency and of functional programming is is optimization, whether it's of human time or of of machine time. Yeah, it's really an holistic approach, right? Right. Yeah, right. So another way to optimize is with asynchronous programming. And asynchronous programming is a little bit different than the other topics we've talked about. Everything else has kind of been about, you know, you have these tasks that need to be done and you want to do them in a very efficient way. Asynchronous kind of provides slightly different benefits. Can you just tell me what asynchronous programming is? Sure, but asynchronous programming uh, is a, a computation that is going to complete a certain point in the future. So you don't really, uh, you don't really aware when that's going to be completed, but you're certainly going to complete at one point in the future, right? So we used to program in the past with traditional asynchronous programming uh, with callbacks, which is quite popular you know in a javascript yep. world but the problem with that is that we have uh, to decouple the the the, the structure of our code that we have some code that start execution now and then a piece of code that run with the callback with a, as a callback when the computation completed so the problem with that is that you have two different structures of the code that you know when start you know when it's completed is the couple where the data are passed how the data are passed to the callback how you handle exception and so forth. So synchronous programming is uh, it used to be complex, but one great benefit about synchronous programming in the context of parallelism is that it's not hardware constrained. So ideally there are you know CPU bound, which is operations that are down to the core in the in a CPU, like you know, probably Fibonacci number is not the right yeah, sure. example, <laughs> but something that crank you know the number in CPU and IO bound that actually the computation is push how the boundary to complete, like, you know, you call the SQL database, database, or call an external web services. So really, you push the work to be complete or be done in a different process or different computer and so forth. And what the benefit of this is that now we don't have hardware constraint. You can really run multiple synchronous computation in parallel, also in a single core machine, because again, hmm. it's not core constraint, right? Sure. And I know a lot of benefits to the end users that they don't get blocked on their thread, right? When I'm clicking some button and some processes running in the background, I'm not having to wait for it before I can click something else. That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> make it more, more responsive. Sure. So a lot of mainstream languages have had asynchronicity built into it at a very low level. I know we have TPL, which is kind of in that same space in C-sharp and, and also in F-sharp. So can you kind of give me the history in .NET specifically of how async came to be from the lower level constraints. I know F-sharp actually influenced C-sharp, right? Yes. Well, so we have in the beginning the APM, the synchronous programming model, mm -hmm. which is, as I mentioned, was like the classic begin and kind of pattern. Right, which we is tough. 
which is tough, <laughs> very complex, because the problem wasn't just the couple, the, the execution process from one piece of code to the other one uh, to control, you know, um, uh, other things, like, for instance, the transaction, if you call database, when transactions start, when it stop. But anyway, so uh, it was tough. And also how you compose the computation, if I have multiple asynchronous computation, one after the one, the continuation was kind of, kind of uh, hard to, to build. So there was like an APM attempt, which is event programming model, which is asynchronous programming. And was the callback was handled a bit better, but it was still, still, rough. It was still pretty complex. So <laughs> ultimately, uh, F-sharp is actually something built in from the beginning of the language called asynchronous workflow, mm. which really is very neat idea because now we have the computation, a computation that look exactly sequential, and but actually it run asynchronously underneath without blocking the main thread or the execution. And this is built uh, in top of the idea called continuation passing, which is, what does it mean really? You start the computation and hide, really raise the level of abstraction from a developer that it doesn't need to know what's going on underneath it, but when the computation is completed, it really pass the rest of the computation to the following one, in a very declarative and sequential manner. Sure. And this programming model really inspired in C-sharp um, with the async and away pattern, which really transformed the sequential semantic of your code in a, in a, in a synchronous manner. Yeah. So really no blocking. Um, so you can basically think of your code as you always used to, right? Yes. So I, I know previously it was, it was painful to do any kind of asynchronous programming. So you had to think about the low level. Now, you know, both with F-sharp's workflows, async workflows, which is a computation expression, if you're more familiar with that term, uh, and you know, C-sharp's async await, you, you really don't have to think about it much. You kind of just put some wrappers around, say it's async, and you're good to go. Yeah, that, that's correct. In, uh, so there is you know, the contest award await and the async. Uh, in a book, I cover in detail what's going on underneath it to be sure how you can handle this. One side that uh, is important to understand is that in C-sharp, uh, the async computation is uh, hot, which means that um, it's, it's still a wrap around the task to make, I think that Microsoft decide, uh, and I think uh, correctly, uh, I like the approach, to use still the task type for both the um, CPU bound operation and synchronous bound operation to mm -hmm. make it simpler to developer to write you know, uh, code that looks similar even if it behave differently. But the problem with that is that whenever you create a task or an asynchronous computation in C-sharp, the code and the execution start immediately right away. Okay. Instead, in F-sharp, the execution is start on demand. And so the, it starts like on usage, basically. Right. Okay. So the developer to start. And the main benefit is that now, because the, the execution is delayed or is start on demand, actually you can create different asynchronous function and then compose them together in a one unit function then run only ah, once I see. Yeah. instead in C-sharp this is not easy in a book I cover how you can extract abstract the, the uh, asynchronous computation in a, I don't want to say really like the lazy uh, <laughs> way but really like let's say lazy evaluated sure. if it's not the right term but and then compose this uh, computation really approaching the problem uh, like C-sharp does using with the uh, com um, continuous passing semantic. Sure. Oh, okay, so a lot of stuff about async there. So a major benefit to asynchronous programming is the fact that it, it allows a very reactive user experience. So speaking of reactive, what is reactive programming? So reactive programming is one of these terms that is um, really is an umbrella that covers different kind of terminology because so... Even reactive programming is this term that is kind of overused because there are, for different people, mean different things. They have a reactive programming and there's no need to be confused to be confused with functional reactive programming because functional programming it came originated from um, a paper in uh, written in 1997 by Kona Elliott and Paul Udaki that really aimed to treat transformation on, of type over time. Instead, mm -hmm. uh, there is a concept about behavior and event, but really reactive programming in a in the industry or you know in a in a less academic I want to say uh, yeah, terminology. Business world, yeah. yeah, really the line of business is about is a primary paradigm that uh, uses synchronous data for programming underneath it and really uses a building block computation of the event stream. And when I say event stream, I mean also data. So really, reactive programming is about 
processing data as they come to the pipe asynchronously without blocking in, in a really in a in a um, functional manner. Like think about like even MapReduce. MapReduce can be like composing different kind of function together, and then you keep pushing events in this pipeline that you generated with the composition of this function uh, continuously that they are processes asynchronously without blocking. Okay. Personally, I like to think of reactive programming under the umbrella of change-driven programming. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like event sourcing and things like reactive programming kind of both fall into that. So event sourcing is you, you have your state in one central location and you basically append events or changes to that, you know, kind of the deltas there. And, and that's how your, your change is going. Uh, that's, that's very similar to functional reactive programming and reactive programming. Would you agree with that? Yes, I, I agree. And I think that there are some um, concepts that they make all these, uh, these different paradigm um, together. Like, for instance, all the event stream are immutable, right? Which is one of the tenets of functional programming. When you process the event, you actually don't mutate the event or the data, but you just transform it and you pass to the next step of the pipeline. So right. definitely it fit quite well in, in, in this context. Yeah, that makes sense. I know previously I had a, uh, in the last episode on Fable, I went to uh, some effort to explain functional reactive programming in the context of model view update, where you had basically some central state and you had events being passed to it. And you know that the guy basically draws a picture on the screen given whatever change is given to it. And it's not that he's changing the screen itself. He's he's basically getting a new piece of paper and writing it that, like that. And that's that's kind of how I see this this event-driven architecture. Yeah, and then from developer standpoint, I think it's much easier to understand and uh, reason about how the program works in this way because there is no you know mutation is a it's just a reactive way. And uh, so talking about reactive programming, we consider about you know this event-driven as we mentioned, and then there is a. Term about called about reactive system that you know, sometimes is overlap used in the same context, but mean different things. Like a reactive system is uh, more like message driven. When you like, for instance, we're going to talk probably later about actor agent mm -hmm. and a reactive programming is more event driven. In the context of um, the .NET ecosystem, Microsoft ecosystem, we have uh, the library, the uh, reactive extension. Uh, was designed from Eric Mayer. And uh, what is interesting, and I should like to post a link in the podcast mm -hmm. uh, about an interview that um, Eric Mayer did uh, in 2009 when the Reactive Extension was first announced at Microsoft, how functional programming and F-sharp specifically was an inspiration for him to build um, this, uh, this library Reactive Extension, sure. which is quite interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of other things that are inspired even from that. I know Reactive Extensions are in JavaScript now. Yes. Uh, and there's there's other... There's, there's a lot of other things in that space. I mean, even uh, Redux with uh, React, Elm, uh, even Vue has Vuex. Uh, there's all these central states and all these different message passing systems where we have kind of a central thing and you have messages passing up to it. So, you know, and you actually have, you know, basically entire languages like Erlang and Elixir that are very event driven, right? That's correct. So there's what, tons of stuff in that space. And what is great about you know the, this idea is that, as you mentioned, it's not really language constrained because the, the idea is just based on simple math that can be applied in any languages. We have a Ruby, uh, we have C++, and just you know, um, quite, quite nice to see how we can apply the same idea in different languages, sure. all coming from the functional yeah. Um, work, right? Yep. So we've briefly kind of talked around the subject of message passing and agents and actors. Can you just briefly describe what is an agent? It's, right. it's kind of a, a weird term, a mailbox processor, an F-sharp as we have it. Right. So message passing is the idea how uh, objects can communicate each other using messages, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, think about in uh, object-oriented programming, we have classes and method. And you really pass argument to the method, and, uh, and classes communicate each other using method, right? So uh, Alan Kay, the man behind um, the coin, the term object-oriented programming in a conference a little while ago, really said and mentioned how when he defined object-oriented programming, in his mind, he had more like a message-passing kind of approach rather than classes objects uh, that hmm. we, we use today. And it, and, uh, it really make more sense to me programming using message passing rather than object and a method. And the reason is because we have uh, two main properties that we leverage, which is isolation and uh, immutability, which are properties that 
you can build programs deterministically and really reduce the bugs because we did a mutation and again it's a, it's a great tool to deterministically understand how the program behave without need to you know sometimes you have another exception which is the classic you know problem in in imperative or objective programming and sometimes to figure out where the exception throw you have to go through all the stack until the method that change the value of, of your state because it was because it's mutable instead with the mutability this problem is removed from the root right mm -hmm. So message passing is based on a mathematical paper written in 73. Uh, so it's not really a new idea. No, none of these are. <laughs> no, it is not. And, uh, and the idea really uh, based on union computation, such as agent and actor, mm -hmm. that send the messages to each other, and they can only communicate through messages. But the state inside the agent or actor is isolated and cannot be accessed from outside the world. One big difference between agent and actor is that actor per se is not functional. Agent is more functional. And agent is really an in-process kind of unit of computation, which means you can access an agent only through a pointer. Rather, an actor can be also in a different process or in a different, different machine, so you can access the actor through an address to an endpoint or references in local process. But the idea is that now, because agents are in process, you cannot just change, send sorry, um, structure, no messages, but the messages can be like a function, can be a behavior, right? Yeah. So you can just compose this function together and send to the agent that apply this function to the bucket of the probably state that they have internally. So in, um, another thing that I really like about agent and actor, how you can compose them in a very pipeline manner. It really, to me, it really fits well when you think about your logic, like we talk about sequential, sequential code programming in the beginning, and really think about the sequential code can be really interpreted as a, a bunch of agents that communicate each other to messages. <laughs> but this point, you know, can be computed synchronously in different machine and scale uh, in, in a different um, volume. All right, so that's a very good explanation of what agent and actors and all those things are. So what options do we have in the .NET space, both in F-sharp and C-sharp? I know I've kind of heard of ACA.NET and all those kind of things. Yeah, so well, uh, step back, we have actually um, more tooling that um, uh, some developer knows in our, in our tool belt. Like F-sharp is a built-in uh, unit called um, mailbox processor, which is an agent, a process agent. And... Um, so you can use that, and what we can do actually, you can leverage a mailbox processor also in C-sharp, just create your library in F-sharp and consume in, in C-sharp. And uh, in the book actually explain actually this, um, this interoperability between the languages uh, that can be done quite easily. There is a big caveat because C-sharp use task versus F-sharp use uh, async workflow, but mm -hmm. how you can change the two is quite straightforward. And then we have another technology um, called uh, TPL uh, data flow, mm -hmm. which is a part of the Tonight ecosystem. You can download in a, is a Microsoft library. You can download from the Nuka package. And uh, what did I provide? Uh, a, a very rich set of building block that uh, really like in a functional style, you can create this building block that runs a computation independently and uh, pipe them. And actually there is this function called link to you create your building block, then you link them together as a pipeline, and each block can run independently. And what is very powerful about this library is that each block can have its own set of configurations, such as each block can have its own specific uh, degree of parallelism and um, queue and so forth. The downside, or the limitation, which probably is not a limitation, is that it don't have a state, like the mailbox processor in F-sharp is uh, can have an isolated state yeah, some internal state right and so it's protected and isolated mm -hmm. the tpl the flow doesn't have it's just a pipeline of, right yeah. however in the book i cover how we can implement an agent using tpl the flow so you overcome this limitation i see and you can actually use agent uh, in, in c sharp quite easily which is a very powerful programming style sure so when i think of message-based processing uh, you know, I'm literally imagining people sending each other letters. When I'm thinking about data flow normally, I'm basically thinking of, you know, I have some CSV or some kind of 
table structure and I'm seeing you know, certain columns being cut out and then certain rows are being cut out and all those kind of things. That's how I'm imagining data flow. When you're describing TPL right now, I'm imagining uh, a slightly higher level abstraction where you're just thinking about those different mutations, if you will, not really mutations of the actual data themselves, but the transformations of data in blocks. And that's, that's a, I think, an important visual to kind of keep in mind. Uh, if, if you are interested in those visuals themselves, I'd highly ch recommend checking out Luna, which is a data processing language that actually came out recently, I think recently, uh, where you can visually see these blocks. So I think it's a good point to make there. Any other things you want to say in the space of reactive programming, especially as it pertains uh, to functional reactive programming? Well, um, I want to say one more thing about the agent first mm. is that when we start to program with the mentality or using agent, it really can become closer to how we'd, uh, we think about. For instance, I cover some example in the book like Game of Life, right? And, uh, it's interesting how you think about the game of life where each cell actually communicates each other to the current state with the neighbors and then base the internal state, change the internal state based upon how many neighbors uh, the cell have. Mm -hmm. And really think about this can be programmed using agent because each agent, agent become a cell and each agent become independent to understand what's the neighbor and uh, around the agent uses a message passing, right? right? So it really easier to understand to me when using a computation agent and, and build uh, this program uh, like Game of Life. Or recently I did a presentation on neural network and I built a neural network using agent. Hmm. And each agent actually is a neuron and communicate between neurons using message passing. So really agent and actor model are very much applicable in, in, a, in, a, in the programming style. It's uh, much easier to understand to me and explain. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of topics today, and all those things are actually in the book themselves. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to include in your book that you just you couldn't fit, either the, you know you didn't have time to write about, or the publisher wouldn't let you, or anything like that? Yeah, so uh, so interesting. Um, initially, the book was estimated as three hundred fifty pages. Mm -hmm. However, I was pretty <laughs> persuaded with with the uh, publisher. And I was keep adding more content, more content, and the book ended up to be um, 540 pages. <laughs> That's quite a big difference. Yes. <laughs> but so, and ultimately, I was pushing to add two more chapters that <laughs> didn't make it, but I think I'm going to create some sort of free appendix. And um, the content that I was not be able to add in the book about how we're going to lift all this uh, concept idea in a cloud environment. So I'm going to cover a bit about distributed system in a, in a book, but I need to cover in detail how we can, uh, you know, um, push to the cloud, like in AWS, Azure, uh, Cloud, and so, uh, Google, and so sure. forth. So that stuff is missing, and I kind of already have some material, so I'm aiming to write something uh, coming soon, and uh, which is quite, quite, quite uh, uh, cool how this, uh, the, the functional approach can be applied in a stateless environment. It just, you know, fit quite well together. And uh, the other part of the book that is missing, I was aiming to have like a short chapter about all open sources and cool library that can help you to develop, you know, concurrent and parallel programming. Yeah, to oh. tease, about, tease apart that ecosystem yeah. a little bit. Yeah, like Akka.net, Embrace, this very cool uh, library that uh, really is, uh, you know, to write concurrent distributed system uh, and in, uh, it can be used, you know, in, in a daily work. In the, all the book, I tried to be library agnostic because unfortunately sometimes library change over time mm -hmm. and maybe your code to be updated so really in the book we're going to go through and build our own library that can you just download and use in a local project mm -hmm. um, but yeah this chapter didn't make it but. ah that's okay um so when you're writing a book it you know it's a pretty emotional and tolling process i know your wife was editing for you a lot i did a little bit of editing myself uh <laughs> And your wife is not a technical person, so that was especially fun <laughs> for her, I'm sure. But, you know, when you're writing it for the emotional bits, you know, what chapter did you like the most? And, you know, why did you do that? And then later we can talk about the resources you used and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, yeah, actually, I should, you know, thank my wife. She was a... <laughs> you should thank your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's been a hero uh, working with me. And uh, one thing that I really enjoy that, uh, is that sometimes we're going to go in, in uh, you know, uh, social uh, with friends and they ask about the book and actually I cannot answer my wife is going to step up answer for me what the book is about and I can't impress that as you said she doesn't have a technical background but she's very good explaining about you know what's going on she's pretty much an expert now in yeah, programming yeah I'm sure 
Yeah, so, for, for the listeners who don't know, Ricardo actually hosts the uh, DC F-Sharp group, which is a great group down here. I've, I've spoken at twice before. And whenever we're there, I, I notice her, his wife's talking to everyone. She knows the people. She she doesn't, of course, programming in functional program, but she knows you know the da- the names like Don Syme and all those kind of things. She knows the, the meta-level ecosystem. So it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah, she's, she, she's, a, she's a good tripper. Sure. So about uh, the chapter, I think there are two main that I like. The chapter 10 is really probably, I want to say the more complex one. Actually, I want to say complex. It took me the longest while. It really took me, usually like a monthly chapter. This took me probably over three, four months. Mm. And it was coming back, coming back and rewriting. Because the concept, I really tried to ease the concept about composition. And there are some functional term, you know, that can be uh, scary. You know, like we talk about functor, monads. So I tried to avoid completing this term by this chapter, I explain this term in a more pragmatic manner, how you use it, and which are pretty much used today. We don't even know how they call, right? So this chapter is about using these high-level abstractions such as mono and functor without call using these names. And now we can use it to compose and write, you know, parallel programming in a very elegant and decorative manner uh, in both C-sharp and F-sharp. I see. In chapter 13, it really something that it was super fun to write. Is the chapter 13 is the idea of uh, some sort of a small cookbook, cook, cookbook recipe, uh, like a series of recipes mm-hmm. that can be used in our daily programming to solve some complex problem. And actually, the chapter is quite long because probably it's like 60 pages, <laughs> but because you know each section is an independent recipe. And I tried sure, to a lot put, of code there, yeah. Right. And uh, there are some recipes very interesting, such as uh, uh, how we're going to uh, maximize the throughput of uh, database access, we know, hmm. because sometimes we have, uh, we're going to write to the base, update the database, but also want to read. So this idea is leverage actually agents and uh, in C-sharp, the TPL data flow to have like single write, multiple read in database and multiple write and uh, the read kind of weight until all the writer completed to read. So it's a very interesting approach and can improve the performance of the data access. Or another recipe very cool is that I create these mini uh, functions such as uh, we said, the fork join or map reduce, which is a link extension without the programmer to rewrite the same functionality over and over, but underneath it uh, maximize also in the term of memory consumption to really to, to, to improve the performance uh, uh, at the top notch. So this is probably my two favorite chapter, no doubt. Very cool. So when you're de- when you're developing this book, you know you're writing a lot of code, you're writing a lot of words here. What resource did you did you pull from? So oh yeah, you have to uh, say my bookshelf is a lot <laughs> of books. I definitely read a lot of old book, uh, such as there is a, a functional functional um, concurrent. Functional, functional concurrency in functional programming is an old book like in the 70s okay. uh, that was uh, right in an ML and I can you know put the link in a, yep. in, a, in a podcast but I've wrote from old uh, functional theory books and um, I'm a paper junkie I like to <laughs> read papers and try to interpret the, the paper in a in a term that I understand like convert the paper maybe using C sharp or F sharp and when I be able to convert in a language that's familiar, then I feel that I understand what the paper is. So a bunch of paper, a bunch of resources, and um, yeah, definitely that was a uh, main resources. Also, uh, a lot of uh, people in the community that I ping, help me out, you help me out in the book, you know, mm-hmm. reviewing the book, and uh, and so forth. So that was uh, very useful. Very uh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So so what's next for you? I know you. You've written this book. It's it's out of your hands at this point. The publisher is about to put it in the paper, yep. and then we can start sending it out. So uh, I know you host the F Sharp user group in DC. I know you've previously worked on Open F Sharp. What's what's in the future for you? So yeah, as I mentioned, Open F Sharp was a conference that uh, uh, was a, a collaboration of um, me, Matthias, um, and Jean from uh, uh, Belgium. And uh, we decided that something was missing in the U.S. And uh, what was missing was a cool, young, and vibrant, a very good environment uh, conference about F-Sharp. And this was actually the first conference in the West Coast about, you know, F-Sharp specific. Mm-hmm. And um, it was super successful. We have uh, more than this that we expected. We have great speaker coming. And uh, this day, actually, we are planning for the 2018 version 
but the date and the location has not been decided yet that we're speaking but it's going to be announced probably next week or so uh, for sure it's going to be in september and the idea actually is you know to put together you know this uh super fun and collaborative community of sharp uh and and in this conference and uh, what i can you know as a spoiler alert i know we have a bigger idea such as the structure of the the, the conference such mm-hmm. as we will have two days conference plus one day full workshop rather than last year was one day workshop and one day conference so it's going to be bigger and better we have a lot of ideas and we have some time you argue about it but i'm sure <laughs> they're going to be a great product sure yeah, yeah i look forward to it i wasn't able to go last time but i'll sure i'll make it this year yeah, that'll be fun. That's, yeah, it's going to be this in September. Cool. Um, so what about what else? What else do you have in your future? I know you're doing some training, aren't you? Yeah, I start to do some training in um, Skills Matter in London. Okay. And uh, I'm going to cover probably some topic in the book, but I'm going to cover also what I was able to cover, such as distribute the system in the mm. cloud as well using the functional paradigm. And uh, I start some training also locally here in US. And uh, so it's doing quite well. And this is... Uh, is uh, quite responsive and uh, I have a lot of good feedback. So yeah, I'm looking forward for that. I'm really passionate about it. Very good. I think I'll see you in F Sharp Exchange as well, right? That's correct. You'll be in London there. then. Yeah, Very I have cool. actually training right before and the conference is going to just enjoy the sitting in the back and the hitting pop. Oh, very nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, there's a lot of links I'm going to post in the show notes, you know, Ricardo's website, Twitter, all those kind of things. Uh, if you want to get in touch with him or get in touch with me, please check out the website wtfsharp.net. Is there any final words you want to you want to give before we close up here? Well, so uh, I will post you know the link you said, and the, yes, please feel free, uh, please feel free to contact me if you have any question. Uh, I'm very you know passionate about the topic, so I like feedback, and um, yeah, please keep in touch. Yeah, again, the name of the book is concurrency.net. It's currently in MEEP phase, although by the time you listen to this, it'll probably be out officially on paper. Subtitle Modern Patterns of Current Current and Parallel Programming. Thank you very much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Yep.